literally have inside a knee joint, I have one area of the knee that's IR and I have one area that's ER. Yeah. Good morning. Happy Monday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Man, I had a stellar weekend. Um, got to see a lot of extended family that I have not seen in a very, very long time. Uh, a lot of people that mean a lot to me. Um, so I appreciate you all. Um, got to hang out at Elvis' house a little bit. Um, yeah, it still looks like the 70s, as I recall. Um, so that was kind of fun. But let's dig into today's Q&A. This is with Timus. And Timus had a question about a knee orientation that is actually quite common that I think gets, gets misunderstood because of the way that it's described. So in, in many cases, things that dis get described as a varus knee. So varus knee is traditionally thought of as a imaginary frontal plane representation, um, which again misleads us as to what the appropriate resolution would be for situations where people might be painful in that in that situation. And what we have to understand is it, it is a series of turns. So it's a series of twists, some in the bone, some at the joint level. And we actually go through that description here um, with, with Timus. A lot of folks think that when they see this representation, there's really nothing they can do to say, oh, well, we've got bony changes, etc." But um, if we do understand what, what we're looking at, so if we have a better modeling of this representation, we can select better interventions and actually make some changes in those knees, as you can see right here, if my technology is appropriate. Um, there's a lot of things that we can do here if we have a better representative model. So thank you, Timus, for this question. If you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. We will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everyone have an outstanding Monday, and I will see you tomorrow. So I have a, a representation that I would like to ask some basically guidance about or, or more information about it. Is yeah. that often clinically I see that um, well, I will speak about the left side, what I often see on the left side, and what is sort of the representation that I want to discuss a little bit. So the common one would be that you have that, uh, so if that's my left hand, left ilium, let's say that would be sort of opened up, so that would be yes. like a later presentation. Yeah. Then you have the, the femur going in towards the center. Yes. And then you have a collapsed foot, right? So that's some, something that I commonly see. Now, yes. these people tend to have a loss of IR, so I, I often check the ranges of the knee, the rotations of the knee, so they tend to lose the internal rotation of the knee, so they have that ER orientation, right? Yes. Now, they wanna, so this is sort of a common thing, but now lately I've been seeing some other clients with a, who seem to be living with the same pains for decades, so they're sort of further into the process, and they seem to, they seem to have... Like it's a sort of a representation of the knee that's very tricky for me. I don't understand it. It's it's that their medial condyle of the femur sort of sticks out. It's literally like pointing up. It's like a shift in the knee. It's like tibia tibia slides laterally and the knee the femur medially, and then they actually you lose the ER of the knee. So they seem to have the IR aggressive. So they if you turn the knee from the sort of position where they rest, they seem to be able to internally orient it rotated internally at the knee, but they don't have, they have very little external rotation at the knee. Their proximal tibial fibular joint has almost pretty much locked. There is no movement there. And at the distal end, and the fibula seems to be approaching the calcaneus. So they seem to have this sort of a external rotation at the distal tibial fibular junction, high arch, usually with a lot of tone, and then tight, stiff toes at the front. Would you walk me through a little bit what happens in a, in a timeline? Like, how do they actually get there? Like, what, what's the situation? Okay. Okay. So, so we have to we have to look at space time. Yeah. Okay. All right. So if we if we start at the knee, mm -hmm. distal femur turns inward. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Proximal tibia turns outward. So there's a twist right there. And we're yes. talking about a bony change. So we're talking about the twist inside the femur as a bone as well. Yes. So the conduct, so like if I hold the shaft, if I hold the shaft of yes. the femur still and I twist the conduct. Okay. okay? All right. Mm -hmm. If I hold the shaft of the tibia and I twist the plateau. Yes. Okay. 
That's what oh. you got first. Okay. First. Mm -hmm. From the top down, I'm going to start twisting the femur into ER. So I take that initial representation that looked like that, and I'm going to do this. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to push. So as you move the, 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 the leg, it starts to look like a bow. Yeah. Right? Okay. Where does the weight go on the tibia under that representation? What, which, which side of the tibial plateau is absorbing more weight? Well, I suppose lateral. No, it's actually on the, so when I, when I bend a bow, uh -huh. so the, so the concavity yes, goes this yeah. way, the concavity goes this way. The concavity yeah. is where the weight's going to be. Yes. So that's the yes. compressive side. Mm -hmm. right? So, so I, as I turn the whole leg into this bowed representation, the weight bearing on is on the medial plateau, which slows that side down from the turn. Mm -hmm. That's why it looks like you have internal rotation of the tibia, but you don't. You have a bend in the tibia that's slowing it down so it doesn't turn as fast into ER. It's the weight bearing surface, okay? So where does this where does this bend actually occur? Is that inside the tibia shaft? So, let me see. Hang on. So if I if I put all the weight right here, where my finger is, yes, this angle right here will increase. Yes. 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 This yeah, I'm still moving sideways, so mm -hmm. I get it bend in the tibia that goes like that okay, okay bending this way while the whole thing turns out this way so i'm i'm i am pushing down yes. here yeah. this so again it's like we have to move through time here the pressure here is ir yes the the, the reduction in pressure here is er okay so this is slowing down relative to this like within the bone itself yeah. This is moving faster in that direction. This side's slowing down, so it's going down into the ground. So the whole system's moving this way. This is slowing down the turn. So you're gonna have this bowed representation with weight bearing on the inside, the, the medial aspect of the knee joint, and it will bend the tibial plateau. So the plateau is trying to stay level while the, while the bone underneath it bends into this bowed representation, which is why you see ER at the bottom, okay? Because the whole thing is turning, right? And they're trying to keep IR into the ground through the medial plateau of the tibia. So this is, this is twist on twist on bend. So it's doing this. I see, I see. Okay? So when you see the foot responding, Okay, where they're starting to pick up the medial border of the foot, mm -hmm. that is way out there. Way out there. I see. Yeah. I see. And does that that shift that happens between uh, tibia and femur is that because the the medial side is delayed and the right side, sorry, the, the lateral side has more ER still, so it has to. So sort of, is that the tibia action or is that the femur action sliding in where that shift happens? So the femur is pushing down. Uh huh. Okay. The femur becomes the weight bearing bone. Yes. Yes. Okay. It's like it's like a medial heel. It's like a big toe pushing into the ground. But mm -hmm. I don't have that representation because the the ER took me so far out mm -hmm. away from midline. So for me to push down into the ground, I have to increase the weight bearing on that bone, right? And so when you ask me which one it is, it's like, well, I'm just creating a, a shape that slows that, that movement down. So, so think about this. So um, is, is IR compression or expansion? Compression. Okay. So ER is expansion. So yes. if I'm looking at a knee and it looks like that. Yeah. You ever see an x-ray that looks like that? Yes. Okay. So, so so I literally have inside a knee joint, I have one area of the knee that's IR and I have one area that's ER. Do you yeah. see it? So yes. the outside edge of the knee is moving faster in this direction. Mm -hmm. This side is trying to slow down. You get mm -hmm. it? Yeah. Yeah. That's, okay. why, the representation, that's why the representations um, 
are, are consistent. ER is expansion, it's movement towards that space. IR is compression that slows me down. So like uh -huh. literally within the knee, you've got that full representation. That's, that's really helpful. Is you're gonna have, they're gonna get pushed forward on the left first. So this is your left limited straight leg raise. This is your inability to capture an early propulsive representation. Then you gotta say, okay, they're most likely gonna be forward on the left, but did they go forward and then to the right as well? Good morning, happy Tuesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay, a busy Tuesday. As usual, we're gonna dig right into uh, today's Q&A, and this is with uh, Pratyush, and Pratyush works with throwers, more specifically cricket bowlers, but this is gonna to apply to just about any any throwing athlete, whether we're talking about baseball pitchers, we do mention javelin um, in, in this discussion as well because of the similarities between javelin and, and cricket bowling. But essentially, what Pratyush is dealing with is um, his throwers are presenting in a late propulsive representation, which means that they're not truly capturing any representation of, of middle propulsion. Therefore, they're, they're having to use compensatory strategies to drive force downward into the ground as a substitution for their internal rotation. One of the, one of the common findings you're going to find here is uh, the limited straight leg raise as a KPI. That's going to be indicative of, of that thrower that is pushed more forward um, towards that late propulsive representation. The concern here is is um, twofold. Number one, we're going to have a reduction in, in force application into the ground. So, so that's a performance related issue. But from an injury standpoint, what we're going to see is we're going to see these prolonged phases uh, of ER. So the inability to capture the early uh, propulsive representation where we're starting to superimpose internal rotation um, is either delayed or non-existent. And so what we're going to end up with is, is throwers with these prolonged ER phases. And this is where you're going to see uh, potential medial elbow stress. And so again, I think Think this is going to be useful um, for a lot of folks and uh, we talk about some solutions as well how to recapture that early propulsive representation so um, i hope you you find this useful um, if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com askbillhartman at gmail.com put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so i don't delete it we will arrange that at our mutual convenience everybody have an outstanding tuesday and i will see you tomorrow so bill this is about a cricket fast bowler okay so can you visualize the uh, delivery stride say i'm sorry say that one more time you're, you're a little choppy can, can, can you visualize the delivery stride yes 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 yeah. okay so like in order to bowl effectively and bowl fast like there must be relative motion of the pelvis like yes. say this is the lead leg right i'm talking about right arm fast bowler so okay. left leg and then it, like Comes yes. in the okay. So yeah. like I see a lot of bowlers who can't do that and their pelvis sort of like moves like the, the real leg kind of swivels around. The so so, so they're taking a they're taking a long loop around on a flat yeah, turn versus yeah. coming straight through. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. So so like I see this uh, common with the right arm fast bowlers, and I see I feel that that is probably because like the sacrum is biased towards the right, and they can't like um, turn their sacrum to the left and Correct. mutate on the left side, and like the left arm fast bowlers are good in 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 this aspect. So I I think that's because of the the natural bias of the sacrum, but like if I have to get these bowlers to have this relative motion. Like, uh, so in, in my head, I'm thinking like they can't own the mid stance mechanics on the left side. Also, I, I see uh, these people have uh, having a limited straight leg raise. And like, I'm thinking whether this is because of the demands of the game or this is like, or we can work on this and we can get them better. Mm -hmm. um, so okay. like, how would you go about that? So, so think about, think about where, where they're limited. So if the straight leg raise is limited, that means that they're either moving through middle propulsion too quickly and they're getting to a late strategy or they're, they're landing towards that late strategy. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, most cricket bowlers are narrow ISAs, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Just because of the release point. Um, so, um, 
so in, in, in many of those cases, what, what you're looking at is you're seeing the late propulsive representation. So like I said, they're either moving very quickly through middle, therefore they don't have a middle, they're going around it or over top of it, so to speak, where they would, they would not be able to capture the, the early representation. So, so when, they, when they strike with their right foot, so before they make their final stride, okay, yeah. they're going through, they're going through, um, they're going through early, middle, and late, but the foot is kind of a, on, a, on a sideways orientation, right? So they're rolling over that inside, inside edge. So this is kind of like the, the thing that we were talking with, with Jen with, with her pictures is capturing that, that middle representation on the right foot, right? So I have a normal transition through middle propulsion on the right foot, okay? Is it, if I don't capture that as I, as I push myself into the into the the final stride the chances of me landing that foot in the proper orientation in the direction that I'm trying that I'm that I'm um, trying to throw um, I won't be able to, to get the the medial foot contact down right so um, they might land a little bit more laterally on the foot and then again they they won't be able to bring the medial, uh, foot contact down, they immediately go through where you would want middle. So they have to anteriorly orient to, to, to create the downward force, but it doesn't allow them the normal foot contact. So what I would do is I would spend more time um, with a left foot forward lead activity. Okay. With, with a, with a delay strategy. So, um, this would be like a uh, left leg forward split squat with with front heel elevated. Okay. okay, that would create that would create the the sacral orientation to create the delay on that on that lead foot. Okay. Now you may also have to go back to the right side, so they may have a situation where, like I said, they don't have a, a good representation of middle propulsion on the right side either. So you would have to do that first. Think about it this in sequence. Um, where if I can't capture the right foot position, I will not be able to capture the left foot position. Because that comes first in the sequence. That is correct. Yes. So, so it, it would be like um, if you were just walking and you step forward with your right foot and if the, the, if the medial aspect of your right foot never touches the ground, you can't get your center of gravity back over to the left side as you would step forward with the left foot. So now you're going to make some form of compensatory strategy there, which would probably accelerate you through the, the, the next step, right? Because hmm. you wouldn't yeah. be slowing down, right? So like, would you do the same thing on the right side as well? Like, as you said, they lack uh, mid-propulsion strategies in the right foot as well. And that, that comes first in the sequence. Okay, so so now you got to start thinking about where you are in space. So so the, they're narrow ISAs under most circumstances. So where they're going to end up is you're going to have they're going to get pushed forward on the left first. So this is your left limited straight leg raise. This is your inability to capture an early propulsive representation. Then you got to say, okay, they're most likely going to be forward on the left, but did they go forward and then to the right as well? So now you got to start looking at your right hip measures. So if, if I'm pushed forward into a late representation on the right side as well, you'll have to bring that side, you have to move them to the left first. So this would be like, and, and it's, it's a great representation for, for uh, cricket bowlers, javelin throwers, and the same thing is this is your lateral sled drag. This is your sled drag to the left, which allows them to capture that medial foot representation. Okay. So I might need to do that, something along those lines first, Okay, to capture that the right foot position that allows me to transition over to the left side without a compensation. And like, do you generally feel like they're forward on the right side as well? Or like, or it, it, it depends. The number of cricket bowlers that I've actually measured are very few. So I'm, okay. I'm I, 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 let's make it two. Okay, it's not <laughs> not a big sport here. Um, yeah. so I, I related a lot to, but I, but I have, I have worked with a lot of baseball pitchers and it, it is, it's similar. It's different, but similar. It's more like a javelin throw. It's, it's much mm -hmm. more similar to a javelin throw yeah. than a baseball pitch just because yes, of the run up and the, and the, and the, the, the foot position. And I was a javelin thrower, so I can speak with reasonable intelligence of that. Okay. Um, but I wasn't very smart when I was throwing the javelin, to be honest with you, I was kind of an idiot. Um, so, so, but I understand it a little bit more. But I would say that I would say look at your right foot positions first. 
Um, let the do you do you do you have video of these guys? Yeah, I have. Okay, so good. So start there. I would start looking at the video, and start looking at the foot contact of of the right foot before before you start looking at the left foot. Because again, if you don't get the right right side orientation correct, the chances of you getting the left side orientation are pretty slim. Mm, okay. okay. Make sense? Yeah. Well, yeah. One more thing. Uh, uh -huh. Same thing. So, uh, like, if I talk about the block as well on the front side, like, do you feel a block would actually facilitate this motion? And if they are not blocking, can you address from a internal pressure standpoint? The front foot doesn't block. Like, if if it blocks, then would it facilitate this relative motion of the pelvis? And if it doesn't block. Then, like, then what and why um, so, isn't it blocking? Okay, so what is the representation of the foot in regards to effectively blocking? I I would say like it, it's a straight leg raise, sort of like straight, and it's internally rotating, like the okay. There you go. Okay. Yeah. So, so you have to have the internal rotation superimposed on the lead foot, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's your medial foot contact. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking about the same thing, right? Yeah, it comes back to the same. Yes. So, yeah. so you need, so you need the early represent. So, so how do I transfer? How do I transfer the energy from the ground of the lead foot to the to the to the ball? I have to, I have to internally rotate to stop rotate. that foot. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Assuming, assuming yeah. I'm going to have the relative motions available to me to do this, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Like I said, you'll find a way to stop, right? But this, it might turn into um, a, okay, we could talk about Alex's thing with the with the big toe. They, they might be jamming their big toe into the ground as the compensatory strategy to make the stop. Now the big toe normally is the stop, but it's usually a distributed load, not a focal load on the, on the big toe, right? And so then they go up and over and, and you, you can see this, you'll see it on javelin throwers too, um, where, where they, they, they um, like their, their last stride will be a little short um, and the, their center of gravity gets up and over their foot too fast. And then they, they try to catch their, they try to push their big toe down into the ground to create the stop. And then they, 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 they fault, they, they step over the line because they're going too fast and, and, and too far forward, hmm. okay? So again, you're still, you're still looking at capturing medial foot contacts to superimpose the IR. Okay, because that's yeah. that's your early representation that slows the left side down so that you do translate the energy up into the ball. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thanks a lot. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have no coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. So today is Wednesday, that means tomorrow's Thursday, which means 6 a.m. Tomorrow morning, the coffee and coaches conference call, as usual. I believe if you're keeping count, we're upwards of, of 72. I'm not even sure when I started counting, but we've been doing these things for a while. They get better and better every week. Enjoying these calls thoroughly. Please join us at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning. The link will be on my professional Facebook page just prior to the call. Okay, today's Q&A. I had two questions. This is really weird. Robert and Rory both asked about uh, shoulder impingement. And so I'm going to kind of combine their question into one. And it goes along the lines of, um, is shoulder impingement associated with rotator cuff weakness and, and putting pressure against the acromion? So, so let's break this down a little bit. I don't think that we can necessarily say that there is an intrinsic weakness in any musculature under these circumstances. What we're looking at are mechanical relationships that allow us to boost force in certain positions. So this goes back to shape change and position. And so if mechanically we can't produce these, these positions that do allow us to boost force, then it may test weak in certain positions based on how we perceive these things, how we are measured. And so if you're an old school uh, manual muscle tester, you might say, oh, you're weak in this position and you can go ahead and blame a certain muscle for that, which is probably untrue. Again, it's probably a relationship uh, problem that you're looking at. Secondly, I think that we probably need to start telling ourselves a new story in regards to some of the uh, 
these so-called impingement tests. And so if we're gonna pick on one, let's pick on NEAR for a second because we've got some, some decent uh, research on that. So the nearest test is where we're reaching above shoulder level and we get the, uh, the shoulder pain. And traditionally it was thought that, oh, you're just um, impinging the rotator cuff against the acromion. Um, if, you look at, if you look at some of the available research, it's not really happening. So we get above that, that um, shoulder level reach um, and some people will say, well, you're probably approaching 120 degrees of traditional shoulder flexion, and then that's where you get symptomatic. Um, if we look at this, they've looked at these things internally, and there is no impingement of the rotator cuff um, musculature against the acromion in that position. What they did find was that there is some compression against the superior aspect of the glenoid, which would be concentric orientation or compression, if you will. And so what I think that we're, we're looking at here, um, Robert and Rory, is we're looking at this, the influence of the superficial compressive strategies, limiting the shape change, limiting, limiting our ability to position ourselves to create spaces to move into. So for instance, if I had a posterior lower compressive strategy in the thorax, as I start to elevate my arm, um, where I would typically think that I have access to space, I'm probably moving into uh, a place where I'm superimposing intra-rotation against the external rotation very, very quickly, and then I'm just running out of space. And so wherever that would show up, whether it be the Hawkins-Kennedy at about 90 degrees of shoulder elevation, whether you would see the painful arc, or whether you would see the, the positive nearest test. So those three impingements that I've talked about in the past are all associated with different areas of compression in the thorax. So I think that's probably a better story to be able to use because as we alleviate those areas of compression, we see the restoration of ranges of motion and we see a reduction or elimination of those so-called impingement um, symptoms. So we probably need a new word for impingement because that's probably not really happening. Um, we could just say pain if we wanted to, I suppose. That might be the easiest way to do this rather than trying to blame something on, on structure. So guys, I hope that, that uh, um, helps you in that respect. What I'm gonna do is like, I'm gonna attach the, uh, the three impingements video, which I think is, is still useful for a lot of folks and, and many people haven't seen it yet, um, where I talked about the, the areas of compression that you're gonna see that are associated with these specific impingement tests. So, so again, should be useful for a lot of folks. Um, if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it, and we'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Wednesday. I will see you tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., Coffee and Coaches Conference call. Have a great day. So this is from Mihail. And Mihail says, hey, Bill. Hey, Mihail. So during shoulder flexion test, when measuring it the right way, so he's making reference to my YouTube video on how to measure shoulder flexion. Um, he says, what's happening when the elbow starts to move laterally? Is there normal motion available at the shoulder girdle? And the only way to get the arm overhead is through shoulder internal rotation. So if you keep raising the arm overhead while allowing the internal rotation to happen, is movement happening only at the shoulder joint with no movement to the scap, clavicle, etc.? Mihail, you are on point. So, so this is a very, very specific situation where we've got a posterior compressive strategy that is gonna limit shoulder um, elevation because it's gonna eliminate the external rotation element of, of elevation. The minute you steal that, you're diving right into internal rotation and you're moving towards internal rotation, but we've got a scapula that can't move. And so we have a very specific limitation and you start banging into the compressive strategy at about 90 degrees of shoulder flexion, which would typically be one of our impingement tests. So what I would like to do, Mihail, is I would like to take this situation and let us look at three different impingements because I think a lot of impingement gets, gets um, packaged into one thing. And I, and I think the current strategies for most uh, PTs is to try to look at, um, they're, they're calling it subacromial pain syndrome um, rather than subacromial impingement. I, I, we don't want to look at these impingements the same because the source of the limitation that is creating the compressive strategy in the shoulder that results in pain is not the same. So we're going to look at three different situations here. And we get to use old school, uh, PT school, orthopedic textbook impingement tests because this is why those impingement tests were valuable at one point in time. They just didn't know why, so we're gonna tell you why here. So we're gonna look at Hawkins-Kennedy, we're gonna look at the near test, and then we'll look at a painful arc, okay? Now, I don't use these tests because my table tests will tell me exactly where these compressive strategies are. Just because somebody doesn't have pain 
with with these these positions it doesn't mean that there's not a compressive strategy there it just means that it's not sensitized so everybody kind of ignores it um, and then when somebody does have pain they tend to blame the poor little rotator cuff it's not his fault he's just the result and so let's talk about where this compressive stuff comes from okay so let's go Hawkins Kennedy first so Hawkins Kennedy is is that that test at about 90 degrees of shoulder flexion where they drive into rotation and and you always get that wincy face on everybody there okay and so what this is this is caused by a limitation in shoulder flexion below 90 degrees so this is a posterior lower compression that steals the early phase of external rotation of, of arm elevation so um, again go to YouTube and check out my shoulder flexion video so you can actually see how to measure this thing okay we're also going to end up with an anterior orientation of the thorax because for me to have that posterior lower compression I got all the other stuff laid on top of it so I got dorsal rostral I got pump handle down um, so again I'm dealing with a lot of compressive strategy and the anterior orientation so I've got an early uh, loss of shoulder flexion, but because of the, of the the orientation, I'm going to hit that IR early, and then I'm going to run out of internal rotation very very quickly. So again, I get this compressive strategy right at 90 degrees. So here's the solution. Number one, we want to eliminate interference. So we're going to avoid bilateral symmetrical exercises. So most of this stuff with a barbell in your hands is probably a bad idea. Anything that's considered a lat development exercise is probably a bad idea with an exception that I'm going to talk about in a minute. So that takes chin-ups and stuff like that off the table. Next step, restore the dynamic ISA. I have to have an ISA that can move so I know that I can recapture breathing excursion. We're going to keep the activities in, in um, uh, below, rather, uh, 90 degrees of shoulder elevation. Because what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to capture that, that posterior lower expansion, but I don't want to provoke any symptoms in the process. And so again, everything's going to be below that shoulder level. The exception might be that we can use a variation of a deep squat pull down. This might not be the first exercise of choice, but it might be something that we can go to because there's a turn that's associated with this. So once we drive something with a with a reach below shoulder level or a supported activity below shoulder level, we may be able to access a higher level of flexion without any symptoms whatsoever. And especially in this deep squat where we're going to get some of that posterior lower expansion in that position. And then we can superimpose a turn. So we're actually going to use the compensatory strategy that Mihail was talking about to our advantage. And we create that turn and we create a reciprocal expansion as we move one arm through the, the pull down um, at a time. And that's going to give us the expansion that we want. So there you go. So there's your solution. This is for the Hawkins Kennedy positive test. Okay. So let's go to the near uh, impingement test. So this is compression that occurs at about 120 degrees of elevation or higher. Okay, so a positive nearest test. So this is an upper dorsal rostral compressive problem. So we're talking about the spine of the scapula upward. Now, to get compression there, that means we've also got a pump handle that's probably gonna get compressed down. So let's move to our solutions. Number one, we want to eliminate interference. Heavy trapezius exercises will probably be off the table. We're probably going to have to lay off pressing, reaching, and, and pulling um, at 120 degrees or above because that's where our provocation is going to be. So this also takes bilateral ITs and Ys and PNFD2 flexions off the table as well as horizontal pressing. Now, we need a dynamic ISA like always, but here's the, ki here's the kicker. I need to be able to capture an exhaled ISA. So to get uh, volume into the upper part of the thorax where I need the expansion to finish shoulder flexion without a compressive strategy, I have to be able to reclose the ISA into an exhaled position and then inhale from that position with the expansion upward rather than expanding the ISA outward in a compensation. If I expand the ISA too much, then I don't have enough pressure to push the volume upward to create the expansion in the thorax. So make sure you can get an exhaled ISA. Um, because of the position of the, of the compression, we've got a lot of exercises um, that we can use now. So we can go prone and we can go support through the upper extremities in most cases. So we can start somewhere around the, the general vicinity of, of 90 degrees um, for a lot of these, these activities. 
and we're going to work on maintaining a yielding strategy in the dorsal rostral. We're going to drive the pump handle up and then we're going to progressively increase the degree of shoulder elevation in these exercises. So eventually what we're going to do is we're going to be able to work towards an inverted position in, in many of these cases. Um, to reintroduce the, the uh, higher reaching and to make sure that we've got the ability to close the ISA, I really like a reciprocal alternating pull down activity in standing that hopefully you can see right here. This is a nice little activity to reintroduce some of the resisted stuff. Um, it's very similar to the, to the squat variation that I talked about with the Hawkins-Kennedy impingement problem, but this is a nice way to reintroduce that. We can also superimpose some cervical rotation on top of that, which will actually improve our ability to expand the upper dorsal rostral area and finish off that flexion without the compressive strategy. Okay, impingement number three. So this is the, the classic painful art test. So this would be traditional shoulder abduction at 90 degrees and, and plus or minus about 30 or so. And this is dorsal rostral compression um, from start to finish. And so this is from about the spine of the scapula down downward. And so number one, we want to avoid anything that's going to compress that dorsal rostral layer. So bilateral compressive exercises like, like rowing, bilateral eyes, T's and Y's, bilateral face pulls off the table. Now, you may be able to perform these unilaterally if, if you can maintain a yielding strategy on the, the non-concentric overcoming side. So as I pull towards me this way, that's going to be the concentric overcoming. I got to capture a yielding strategy on this side. If you can do that, then you can do these activities unilaterally. But to do them bilaterally, it's a bad idea because all you're doing is compressing that area. Okay? Now, we still have all of our posterior yielding exercises that we can do. So again, we've got some of those prone variations, but one of my favorite things to do in this situation is um, go to my, uh, my Better Band Pull Apart video on YouTube or anything that couples the yielding strategy in the dorsal rostral area with shoulder external rotation. What happens under these circumstances is you're actually turning the scapula into what would be, I believe, traditional internal rotation of the scapula, which actually expands that dorsal rostral space um, to even a greater degree. Love those exercises for this situation. So this would be your typical painful arc strategy. So there you go. You got three impingements, three strategies, three solutions. This is why you lay out a chessboard on every patient, right? So you can see the relationships. And then the question becomes, it's like, okay, how can I possibly have this representation? Good morning. Happy Thursday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. When say you're working with someone with like a neck and shoulder pain combination and you're looking at their internal rotation at the shoulder and you would expect it to be limited and maybe you see like what you would say is like a coffee cup measurement on one or both sides as far as thinking they should definitely be very down pump handle but how do you have 50 degrees of shoulder internal rotation um i've heard you mention that that could be when you're measuring their shoulder internal rotation they're turning their cervical spine towards the side you're measuring could you no, it would be away if it's internal rotation it'd be away could you explain um how that manifests what do you mean sure um so if if you if you turn your I tell you what just hold your arm up and and like uh, yeah go go like straight out horizontal kind of a thing right and then turn your thumb down yeah and then turn turn keep keep turning your arm no 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 don't turn your head okay keep your keep your, keep your face on the camera just keep turning your arm uh, inward yeah you turn away from yeah, you turn away, you turn away from the measurement. So that's cervical spine turning away where you're usually buying that, that space. Same thing happens in the hip all the time. Um, it's just that um, the leg might be heavy enough that it doesn't allow the, it doesn't allow the spine to turn. And then again, this is why, this is why you, you know, measure in reference to the table. So you can understand which way that they are moving under those circumstances. You get a magnification of ER, it's typically rotation toward you. You get 
magnification of IR, it's typically rotation away. Is that also an issue of practitioners not calling their measurements soon enough when they're performing it on the table? Or is that something that like, if you're being strict about not having like a lot of anterior humeral head translation when you're doing your IR measurement that you should there be shouldn't able to be any, right? and prevent that. Yeah. There shouldn't be any. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's just me getting lazy sometimes and not calling my, my measurement when I should. And then they're not necessarily, not necessarily. Cause again, it's like you're, you're not always going to be able to see this stuff. Okay. Right. I mean, yes, you need to be reliable with yourself you know, and, and, and try to be as consistent as you can with your measures, but um, I got a little distracted there. Uh, we're talking about internal rotation. Yep. So um, no, it, um, sometimes you're, you're, you're literally not going to see it because again, there's so much motion at the spine that, you don't like there's there's no anterior glide on the shoulder and you feel freedom of movement it's just the fact that it's not coming from a distributed relative motion from the the humerus to glenoid scapula ribcage spine it's literally just a bunch of spine turn and it moves very very easily because the orientation is so strong in that direction so right. you won't feel it okay but again it's like that's why that's why this is why you lay out a chessboard on every patient, right? So you can see the relationships. And then the question becomes, it's like, okay, how can I possibly have this representation? Knowing full well that I've got my checks and balances on the ipsilateral side, right? Knowing I've got three confirmations of external rotation. I've got three confirmations of internal rotation. Okay. Does that got make it. sense? Yep. Okay. Cool. But again, nobody's going to be able to press overhead in ER because you just don't have enough force to do it. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. A busy Friday as usual. A little behind schedule. So we're going to dig straight into today's Q&A. This is with Manuel. Um, we were talking about uh, the knees moving away from midline in a squat and how that would relate to what we would see in, in pressing movements. So we can alter grips on a bar, um, but what are we going to see in regards to how we adjust the upper extremities under load as we would see in, in a squat? And it turns out we're gonna see very, very similar strategies um, because the, the principles are the same. So we have structural issues that are going to be influences. So your archetype is gonna help determine what uh, ranges of motion that you're able to access most easily. So uh, for instance, if you're a wide ISA, you're gonna be biased towards being a better bench presser than you are an overhead presser. It doesn't mean you can't press overhead. It just means that from a structural standpoint, it's easier for you to access um, those ranges of motion. If we have superficial compressive strategies, that, that um, have been superimposed, then obviously that's going to limit the spaces that we can access as well. And so we discussed that in reference again to, to how we're gonna see this show up in a, in a pressing motion. So if you're wondering why you see the, uh, some people needing wider stances, why you see knees moving away from midline under certain circumstances, this will give you that explanation. So I think you'll find it useful. Uh, if you would like to participate in a 15 minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15 minute consultation in the subject line so I do not delete it. We will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding weekend. Uh, podcast should be up on Sunday. Don't forget to go to the YouTube page and subscribe so you can get all the videos um, that we post up there. And I will see you next week. Morning, Bill. Um, I was watching uh, one of your videos the other day about uh, knees out and squatting. About which and one is squatting? Sorry. Knees out. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the person was asking, uh, you know, if they have their knees out, where are they getting the IR? And you were mm -hmm. talking about the, the femur get, uh, getting the IR when you're uh, knees out because you're compressed A to P. Yep. And I was trying to figure out um, how is that represented, uh, in the upper body? So like when you're pressing overhead or when you're bench pressing, like the difference between a narrow grip and a wider grip, I can see when you use a wider grip that you're going to get more, uh, IR through the humerus, like for example, in a bench, 
But if you take a, a narrow bench, you know, since you're, uh, I feel, where are you getting, I guess, what, how is that? How, how is what we see at the squat? How can we transfer that into like uh, bench pressing or overhead pressing between narrow and wide grips? Okay. So, so now we have to talk about what spaces do you have available to you when you're performing the activity, right? Mm -hmm. So when we talk about somebody that is, that is, that is moving the, the legs away from midline. So the reason that they're doing that is because they don't have a space in front of them, right? And, and so they have to orient outward to get into a space that allows them to move and still allows them to apply pressure to the ground. That kind of makes sense, right? So what's the difference between a squat here and a squat there? is where I have that space. So if I'm trying to move my grip inward, so if I'm doing a press on a bar, are we talking about like a, like a flat press? Like a, like a. Yeah. So I was thinking either like narrow versus wide grip bench press or yeah, just okay. narrower right. versus, versus wide grip uh, overhead press. Yeah. Now we go to frame of reference. Okay. So um, if I, if I don't have access, so if I'm, if I'm compressed A to P, my ERs move away from midline, right? So if I am intentionally bringing my, my grip inward and I do not have access to that space, you will have to, um, create a compensatory strategy. So what do you think you're going to see under those circumstances if, if, it were, if we're just talking about a squat and I brought somebody's feet closer together and they do not have that space, what would they do with their knees? Um, they would either bow their knees out or in the case of a narrow stand squat, I, sometimes, I, I see more like lower back rounding. Like okay. If right. they try to do so, a narrow stand. So again, so, so, if, so if, I, if I brought their squat in, their knees are going to go out, right? Okay. So do you think you've ever seen that with somebody trying to do a close grip bench press? where they, their elbow, they can't keep their elbows in, right? So mm -hmm. they, they push it out or they turn their hands, right? Mm -hmm. So this would be like somebody that toes out as a, as a substitution, right? So you're mm -hmm. going to kind of see that you're going to kind of see the same orientations on the, on the bar that you would see with the feet on the ground. Mm -hmm. Now, if somebody does have the capacity to, to hold their arms in a straight line and they still don't have access, to that to that space now you're going to start to see a proximal representation where you're going to see somebody that looks like they're they're elevating the scaps so there's your substitution for the 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 um internal rotate that's an internal rotation representation because what they did is they elevated up and out this way to create the er and then the ir is through the the spine Right, because a shrug is just an internal rotation. If I shrug on both sides, I'm internally rotated on both sides, and I'm just shoving them forward. Mm -hmm. So again, so they're applying. That's how they apply force into the bar. So so under each circumstance, it's going to be a very similar representation to what you would see in a squat. Mm -hmm. And then if you were pressing overhead, if you were going from like a, a narrow press versus something that's a little bit more open and you know less range of motion yep. overhead. Yep. You would have in the wider grip, you would set that humeral, humeral IR, but then here you're getting your IR, I guess, through just that shoulder flexion. Eh, probably you're gonna so so what you're gonna you'll you'll see the you're you're gonna see the elbow turn outward more in the overhead position, or they're gonna push their their head and their thorax forward more, mm -hmm. right? Assuming they can get the bar into that space, right? Okay. So again, it just becomes a magnification of, of where you can, you can capture the internal rotation. If I have enough space to get the, the arm overhead, they'll probably turn outward. It, it, it's, actually, it's actually, it's an internal rotation. The elbow is going to point out more, right? Where you, like I said, and we've talked about this a little bit before where you, you, know, where you have those people that, that look like they're sticking their head through the window at the yeah. end of a press. And under most circumstances, because of the amount of internal rotation force that you need to apply to the bar, you're going to see an element of that. The question mark is, is it, is it exaggerated to mm -hmm. a, a, a degree that you don't appreciate? So with the, with the squat, uh, narrow versus wide, if uh, your ability to go narrow is your ability to uh, have that relative motion in the pelvis, with the upper body lifts, it's, it would be, I guess, more 
was it relative motion in the rib cage or just that ability to expand the rib cage A to P to get into those narrower spaces? Is that, is that the same well, representation? I, I would, I would question, I would question whether they actually have anterior posterior expansion versus are they just shoving the spine forward into IR, right? So just because you, you see what appears to be an expansion in the chest, if the spine is pushing forward, that's just the internal rotation representation. And then I just have to, I have to move the rib cage forward in response to that. Right. Right. But your, but your ability, if you, if you can, uh, to get in order, if you wanted to obtain say a narrower grip and, and, and complete the movement, um, I guess what, what's the pelvis of the upper body to get you to have that? Cause you need that, you need the pelvis to have that relative motion for a narrow stance squat. So right. what, if we're, but if, hang on, we need, we need if that, we're... you know, we need that sternum, to, you know, that pump handle and that thoracic. Yeah. I guess, mo movement to expand so that you can get into those spaces. Okay, those but with, with, spaces. With, with an external load, right. you're going to be compressing to push that into, that pre the, to press that upward. So again, this is where you're going to see, so even though the grip is narrow, you're still going to see the elbows moving away from midline as they move through the spaces where they, they would be most compressed. So the upper thorax is going to get compressed in, a, in, a, in a, a heavy overhead press under all circumstances. Nobody's gonna get to that space um, with, with full relative motion of ER. So you're never gonna have full anterior posterior expansion. You're always gonna see some deviation away from midline. Don't, don't pay attention to the hands, look at everything else as they're moving it through space. And then they're gonna be able to, to straighten the elbow. But it, again, you're gonna get the internal rotation at the top under almost every circumstance because they have to move into an ER space. That ER space moves away from midline um, under all circumstances under load. Okay, just, it's yeah. just a matter of degree as to how, how difficult it is. And then um, what other strategies can they use systemically so if you were doing like a one arm overhead press, I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff that can go on there that there's a lot of turning that can take place. Right. Um, in, in, you can orient yourself away from that, that press to get the arm overhead. When you're fixing it on the barbell, you, you're, you're only allowing the, the turns to go A to P, right? But again, nobody's gonna be able to press overhead in ER because you just don't have enough force to do it.